Well, this is Rugger Matrix America. Welcome back to the show, everybody. This is Alex Goff with RugbyMag.com, and uh, we're joined by Bruce McLean all the way from New York City. And, and Bruce, you've raced in back from uh, sunny Marietta, Georgia, to, to come and get on this show. How you doing? I don't know if it was sunny, but it was pretty <laughs> rainy, that's for sure. Actually, uh, our game was in a uh, – our game actually had a had a decent amount of um, of of good weather. The, the college game – Struggled a little bit for 20 minutes, and then it, then the weather cleared up a bit, and it was okay. Disappointing for the AC, but I think that uh, I think we'll be doing that again on May 14th. I think yeah. that game's going to get replayed. Unfortunately, not in New York. It will be played at Life. But yes, we are going to redo that one. It was a great game of rugby. You guys looked uh, uh, pretty pretty down at the end of that game. But uh, but we're not here to talk about New York Athletic Club, strange as it may sound. Uh, we actually have an outstanding guest here for our show. We have the United States national team head coach, Eddie O'Sullivan, uh, with us today. And, Eddie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Uh, how are you doing? I'm, I'm glad to be on. And uh, good to talk to you again, Bruce. Uh, hard luck yesterday. I'm sure it was a good game. Two good teams going out. So it's great to be back on Rugometrics again. Now, Eddie, you were at a game already this past weekend you were uh, attending the chicago lions chicago griffins game yeah it was my third super league game i, I started the season i was in dallas for the san francisco uh harlequins game and then last week i was in marietta for, for the life boston game and yesterday i was in chicago for the uh the local derby between the lions and the griffins yeah a bloody good game again you know tough physical game windy conditions very cold but uh on a good surface and uh, the Lions prevailed and prevailed well. Uh, they played really, really well. They t- took it to the Griffins in every quarter and dominated the Griffins at the set piece, particularly in the scrum and um, at the breakdown and the contact area. Really, the game was over at half time. I think it they pretty much shell shocked the Griffins. And uh, so it was a good performance by the Lions. But it was another good game, you know, good physical game and, and some, some stand up performances. Now you've been going to, like you said, you've been going to a few Super League games. I don't know if you are also been able to catch some college games. And Super League is perhaps more the, the the pool of players you want to be scouting. But you can't you can't go to every game obviously during the week. And um, no. you're able to you're able to study film. Is is studying film better than being there in person? Is being there in person better than studying film, or is it uh, both of them have their attributes? Both of their attributes. I mean, I like to be there um, if I can, but I can only, as you say, get to one game every weekend, which is, you know, not a lot. There's a lot of games going on, but uh, but I like to get there just to see the players, chat to some of the players, meet the coaches, you know, touch base with the coaches, get their opinions on things, which is always useful. But as I said, you can't get to every game. So um, with a lot of work from David Hodges, we, we instituted a system last year where, where all the Super League coaches, and they deserve a lot of credit for this, they, they videotape the game and then they upload it uh, to a website and we can download all those games and uh, we can watch them and we can code them here in the office during the week and we can look for standout performances. So every game gets watched and coded. And um, we also let the Super League coaches access those games as well so they can scout the teams they're playing the following week and so forth. It's been a very successful program we ran last year and we rolled it out again this year with a lot of work and cooperation with the collegiate teams. So even though I won't get to a lot of the, the the college premier games again will have access to those those films and be able to see those those players playing so that makes it a, you know a lot better in terms of scouting but i do like to get around and as i say be on the ground as much as i can and again just to meet players and meet coaches and get their take on things that's always very valuable and chat chat to the coaches about the players and what they feel about them so it's 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 kind of trying to let no stone on turn it worked very well last year um, and it's working well again this year. I'm really happy with the, with the effort. And I, I have to say a lot of credit to our technical analyst, David Hodges, who's really the, the, the driving force behind this. Um, it's been really valuable to us. Eddie, we had a Six Nations just went, and two of the teams in the Six Nations you're going to face in Ireland and Italy. Um, what did you see out of Ireland and, and Italy that you know possibly can provide some opportunity for us to be successful against them? Well, at first set overall, it was a really poor Six Nations, very mediocre. I mean, at the end of it, you had a, a pretty average England team, uh, pretty much bereft of a midfield when you look at the, the their, their, their 10, 12 and 13 in terms of 
international class players. They're really short and they ended up playing for a grand slam. That'll tell you in a very erratic French team all over the place. Um, a Welsh team that promised a lot and delivered very little and, and a, a pretty erratic Irish team which comes to brings us to where we are with Ireland I mean it was a really strange um, Six Nations for Ireland they, they won two games they, they probably could have lost well they should have lost Italy but they pulled it out of the fire at the last minute um, and they could have lost to Scotland and then they, 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 they won those games but they could have lost them and then they went in the last two games they could have won you know they, they could have beaten Wales they did a couple of opportunities plus a a really um, outrageous try that Wales got that shouldn't have been allowed. And they, they, they blew a game against France by giving away 18 kicks from penalties. And and they looked like a team that really weren't themselves. They weren't settled. But they did pull it out of the fire in the last game and they demolished England. So I think Ireland are a team that, if they play well, they're world-class. You know, there's no doubt. They have a lot of talent. Some really good young players after finding their way into the team. Um for us, the, the trick is going to try and stop them playing that game, um, which is going to be a challenge, but you know that's what we're here to try and do. But I think they're in that phrase at the moment, and I'll watch their, their warm-up games very closely because they have looked vulnerable uh, in terms of their confidence, You know, giving away a lot of penalties, making a lot of unforced errors, and really kind of shooting themselves in the foot you know, against teams that should be well, um, and really putting themselves under pressure. So no doubt in the World Cup, that's where we want them to be as well, if we can get them there. But we'll see how they go on the warm-up games. They've got four warm-up games. They play England twice. They've got France and Scotland. And, and if they play those four games with the same sense of trepidation, they played the first four in the Six Nations, I think they could be a little bit vulnerable on, on a day out, one day out, You know, especially the opening game of the tournament on September 11. But you know, to be fair, it would be a case of them playing below par and us playing out of our skin to really give us a shot at beating them but it's not impossible to happen um, certainly I think we can contribute to putting them off their game uh, which is going to be what we're going to have to do I thought Italy um, as a team you know, were probably the most improved team in the Six Nations although they still ended up with a wooden spoon but they should have beaten Ireland they got demolished by England but I think they came off that high of nearly beating Ireland and they, they slumped but after that again all their performances were very solid. And then they went on to beat France. Now, France were appallingly erratic in the championship and they seemed to be all over the place. But again, Italy showed that they've got this kind of resolve that they can, they can you know, take teams on physically. They've got a very solid set piece. Um, and strangely enough, the game that, that they got beaten in the last game against Scotland, which was surprised they were beaten so well, but Scotland did demolish their line-out. But their line-out's been very good throughout the championship. Their scrum has been excellent. The one thing they're missing is they don't have a really world-class 10 to run the game, which has always come against them at times. And the second thing they don't have is a world-class place kicker. Bergamasco is not a front-line place kicker. He does make some great kicks, but he's missed some as well. That's cost him games. But again, they're not a team that tend to put 30 or 40 points on a team like Ireland can. They just grind out victories. So you can stay with Italy. You know, you have a chance of, of upsetting the apple cart with them. But you have to stay with them. And to do that, you've got to do your basics down. Your set piece has got to hold up. You've got to be very aggressive in the contact area. And you've, you know, not give away silly scores against them because that gives them the breathing space to relax. We need to keep the pressure on them. The Irish defense, they tend to really kind of hold you up. And they'll put two or three guys in on defense flooding and kind of hold you up and try to get a, um, try to get the ball back into a scrum from, you know, a, uh, Balls held up, you know, yep. all not not exactly. not coming out. Exactly. And I just want to know how are you going to counter that with in, in the contact area because it's going to be a very difficult area for us to deal with. First thing I say, Bruce, is that's been a huge problem for them. I mean, I, I'm surprised they're still pursuing that strategy. It does come off occasionally where the guy gets doubled up and he, he gets jammed up and he can't get the ground and they they create the mall and get the turnover or they strip the football, and they've done that a few times. But in terms of a percentage play, it's been a low percentage play, and worse still, they've ended up giving away penalties because what what referees are not going to do is call down a mall in the first three or four seconds. They're going to give you a chance to get on it and drive it to ground. And if you drive it to ground, then they call it a ruck, and those two Irish players have got to roll away. And they've struggled rolling away. They've been penalised. They've struggled... If one of them goes down and one stays up of releasing, because they're both tacklers, they're both regards tacklers. One of them has, both have to release the tackle player, and they struggle with that interpretation. 
So I'm surprised they're pursuing it because it's a dangerous strategy if you get the wrong side of the referee. And they have got the wrong side of the referee in the championship a few times. And technically, they have an issue. And technically, I can see where they're coming from. But it's only technically working if the referee is buying into it and they're not. So I don't know if they'll change that strategy. But if they don't, we've got to be careful. And we're going to have to work on changing our body positions and our angles going into contact. And we're going to have to take them in a lot lower. Um, I don't want to give away how we're going to do that because I, I, you never know, there might be some Irish court system to rugby matrix, but we do need to look at that. It's something we can't get, we can't get held up in those positions and turn over the ball. But it's something they've pursued for the last three years. But I think the law is working against them now, and I'm surprised they're continuing to do it. So we'll see in the warm-up games if they have if they change that strategy. If they change it, we'll we'll see. If they don't change it, we'll have to adapt and not get into those held-up positions or get jammed up by two tacklers. But it is an issue that, that has to be looked at very closely when we are playing Ireland. Eddie, also about Ireland, what you said about uh, them getting, even even with ho- trying to hold players up, but getting themselves into penalty trouble. Yeah. That, that is, you know, any team that's playing uh, against someone who's going to commit a lot of penalties, they start thinking, okay, we can take advantage of that. And I think that, over the last few years with the USA team, it's been a little bit frustrating for uh, fans watching because they don't see them taking advantage of penalties. And I, you know, I, I, it's just anecdotally what I remember writing is so often I write, well, they had a chance, they kicked to the corner, but the lineout didn't work out too well, or something else happens, something along those lines. I think we could point to uh, probably several moments against Georgia, against uh, against Portugal, or even other games where that. It's not either. It's not executed, or just something strange happens, and what seems like a try right on offer doesn't happen. So I, I guess the question in there is, what if you see? Do you see that? And if you do, what can be done about it? Um, well, the first thing is we are going to have to kick those penalties into the corners a fair bit because at the moment we don't have a kicker who can, like a lot of countries, who can has a range of 45, 50 meters. Um, you know, like Ireland has, or or, or, or even Bergamasco does not not accurate as a long range striker. Um, we don't have that length, so we need pe- if we get penalties within inside the forty, we can have a pot in them. But outside the forty, we've got to put them in the corner. And then you've got to have a mindset that you're going to your accuracy has got to be top drawer. You know, and our lineup's been good, uh, I think, over the year. I mean, we we fluffed a couple. Uh, there was one in the Georgia game, I think, which was about. We were into injury time and we we're in their half, and if we'd won it and just stayed there, we'd have won the game. But we lost that lineout, and that's that's kind of galling. But when you get into those power positions, I call them, where you can run a power play, um, you've got to be accurate. And the first thing is win the ball, and then you got to have the mindset you're not leaving that section of the field until you you get something for it. Like you just score a try, or, or you get the next penalty, which is now within kicking range, and you you, you slot your points. It's down to accuracy, um, really, down to accuracy and, and, and execution. And it's something we have to look at because in a game against, say, against Ireland, you know, or, or Italy, a tier one nation, you might only get two of those in the game. You might only get two of those real premium positions on the field and you really got to, you know, take advantage. You can't let them off the hook by, by losing your accuracy. And I, that's what it's been down to a couple of times, um, you know, just not being accurate or a missed call or a missed lift. And we often blame the hooker uh, for those when they're thrown in, but it can be often a mislift by a, by a prop or another lock who's lifting somebody and doesn't get him in the right place and he's not where the ball is at the right time. And that's down to accuracy. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's something you just have to nail and we have to be that mindset in the World Cup. We get those chances against the Tier 1 nations. You've just got to execute and at least put them under pressure and make them defend for, for a protracted period of time. And I don't care who it is. If you do that, usually something good will happen. I got a question about – I agree with you on the accuracy part, and I, and I think that's critical kind of – when you're in their end, you got to come away with points, and when you're in your own end, you got to get the hell out of there. And, and well, I agree with not blaming the hookers all the time. Yeah. No, it's just – you know, it's a, it, it's, a, it's a choreographed thing. But – Well, just so, this way, Bruce, is that it takes four people to win a lineout, two lifters, a jumper, and a hooker. Yeah. And, and it's so easy to blame the guy throwing the ball in. There could be any of the other three guys who who, who missed their assignment. You know, it could be another guy on a it could be another guy in a dummy that just there's a lot of things that can happen that can that can Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts in the modern lineup. But 
talking about the line out, we, we really got to move to the other area set piece. The Eagle scrum has kind of been a, a disappointment because you have a good back row, you have a pretty good second row, and you have an excellent back three. And that, that, that area of play, if you can get a solid set piece possession, I think that you'll be able to free those guys up and, and we'll score more points. So what are we going to do in the USA about that set piece? Who, you know, who are we looking at? What's going, you know, how are we going to set up? How are we going to sort out that issue, that area in the front row as far as scrummaging goes? Cause I think that if we can get that right, we have a pretty good opportunity to do some pretty good things. Well, actually, I, I, I think we have to rethink our strategy at the scrum, uh, which which we did the last week of the tour in Georgia. And it's ironic that ultimately their winning score came from a scrum on our line in the, in the eighth minute. But I would have said prior to that throughout the game, we had coped well. But what is Georgia's is a really, really strong scrum. They, they, a bit like Argentina, they pride themselves on their, their props, their national sport is wrestling. And they have they have a huge number of props there in France, so they're always going to be a good scrummaging team. So we knew, I knew going into that game that you know if we had continued the same strategy we'd we'd followed up to then, it was was going to be problematic. So what we did is we changed our strategy uh, to actually just getting the ball away very quickly from the scrum. We packed Todd Clever down in the shoot, and we we hit channel one balls, and we just got the way got away from there as quickly as we could. It's not the perfect ball at the number eight's feet that gives your back line a chance to launch. But I think it's 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 a good starting point for us um, that we, we try and take the ball away from the set piece pretty quickly. I mean, until we start producing world-class props, um, you know, like we're going to, it's always been an area. And even I remember back in the, in the day when I coached the Eagles back in the 90s, the scrum was always a struggle for us, you know. Uh, we always had to, to work very, very hard to get possession. So it's just a fact of life that, you know, a lot of the props we produce haven't been playing for a long time. They're, they're young as props go. They're quite young. So they don't have the experience which gets exposed at the top end. So we've got to strategize around that. And I wouldn't say I was happy in Georgia, particularly losing the game on a scrum. But I thought we coped a lot better than we, we would have had had we not changed, changed strategy. And we also started looking at when we wheeled the scrum to our advantage but offensively, defensively, we change our cadence on the feed. Uh, sometimes we, 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 we hit, set and, st- and struck. Sometimes we hit and chased and, and fed on the chase just to keep the opposition off balance. So I think, you know, we've got to rethink that. It was a starting point in Georgia. It was kind of a salient moment in, in terms of our scrum of what we need to do going forward. That's where we are at the moment. Um, I think it's, I think it's fixable. I don't think we're going to dominate anybody in the, in the scrum as we, as we stand, like, you know. I don't really think that we're that strong a scrummaging nation, but um, I think there's ways around it if we play if we if we if we, if we play smart, you know. Yeah, I, and, and like even looking at the Georgia game, I don't know what the score was, eighteen fifteen or whatever it was. They basically scored every point off of scrums. I don't think they had one point that they scored that wasn't from a scrum or a scrum infraction or something. Well, I, so, I, well. Be fair. I think the, the ref. What's happening with referees as well, and this is this is a problem, and it's been proven, you know, even in the Six Nations, that if a referee decides that you have a weak scrum and they have a strong, a strong scrum, you tend to get penalised at the scrum. And we've got penalised in the last year at times where the opposition have been illegal, and the referees decided that we were the weaker scrum, which we probably were, but doesn't mean we infringed, and that's a problem. And you know, it's a chicken and an egg, you know. Like, if the referee's mindset is that you're you're the problem at the scrum, then he's more likely to penalise you if the scrum goes down. And we've had that issue with referees right through last summer as well at the, at the Churchill Cup. We had, like, the French scrum is coming. And you did, you did have you had a lot against France that when Hodges did the uh, the video analysis for the referee, you could see that the French prop wasn't binding. He well, was doing were, a lot of illegal stuff. That leads me to my it, next question. You know, you were talking about the refereeing against Ireland, you know, when, when if they double up on you or triple up on you and kind of try to hold the guys up and, and stick to the ball. I don't anticipate you getting many calls in the World Cup because referees in the World Cup don't want to ref the upset. They just don't. Because if they ref the upset, if, if you have an upset, like you're as a coach, if, if there's a big upset, the first thing you ask is who refed. You don't ask, did the team play well? You ask who refed. 
that's not just the World Cup. We've had that problem on the fall tour as well when we played even Scotland Day. We had a problem with the referee. No, no, no. What I'm saying is like, if, say for instance, somebody says, for instance, like Cal lost to Claremont. You're not like you don't ask, did Claremont play well? You say who refed. The first yeah. thing you ask is who refed. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's more of a factor. I agree with you. I'm actually agreeing with you. I'm telling you, we've had this problem. Not this is not going to be a problem just in the World Cup. We had this problem for the last year as well. You know, it, it, if you play a tier one nation, referees are nervous that they're going to be in charge of an upset. I don't think they go out to do. They're just nervous, and and you know the 50-50 calls really don't fall your way a lot of the time, and sometimes it's a little bit worse. You know, so that's a fact of life. But I mean, I've had that discussion actually. Would you believe with Paddy O'Brien? I've actually had that discussion with Paddy O'Brien last November. I met him at the World Cup conference, and but I had the discussion with him, and he said, "Oh, that they were going to really make the point to referees that when you're refereeing in a World Cup game, you know, it's it's not Ireland against USA, it's it's blue against green, and and you got to call it like it doesn't matter whether it's tier one, tier two, or whatever." So he's aware of it. So maybe he can get something done on that. Um, which, but it is, it is, it's human nature, I guess. You know, I mean, I'm sure it's what happens in other sports as well. Eddie, I think that the it's it's calls, and one of the things that really has struck me over the years is how quick a, a referee is is to go to his pocket against a, a second tier nation, and uh, you know, you, you'll see where there's not even a warning on on a ruck infraction, and then suddenly somebody's sitting down. And, uh, you know, what, even watching the Six Nations, um, I find myself just, uh, you know, calling out, you know, wh- where's, where's the, uh, where's the card? Because there's, there's no card being given to these, uh, these higher tier nations. Uh, when you, you, and I'm thinking, you know, you, you know that USA or, or Canada would get a card. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that. That they they are a lot more lenient with with the, with the tier one nations, and they're a lot harsher on the tier two nations. Now, if you if it's two tier twos playing, I think it breaks even. If it's two tier ones, usually it breaks even. But if you get one tier, and it goes back to Bruce's point, I think it's just human nature. There's there's a there's just a reticence on the referee's part to be the guy who calls a game that has a major upset, uh, especially in a major tournament, um, and it's extra pressure on the referee. Um, you know, so it, it is what it is, and all you can do is make make the, the the powers to be aware of it. But I, as I said, I've had that discussion, and there, are, I'm not the only coach has done that. By the way, a lot of tier two coaches have done that. You know. Well, uh, moving on to some of the things you can control, you do have a national team to put together. You've got you've got a squad to pick. You've got a bunch of players to prepare for this uh, World Cup in September. Uh, What's going on with the preparation, especially trying to get time together? It would seem to me at this point you do have a pool of pretty good players. You could use an, an, you could use some goal-kicking help and, and some depth in certain areas, but you do have a pool of pretty good players. The question is, do they have time together, and is it the kind of consistent time where you're not reinventing the wheel every time they come back? Um, well... I, first, I'll say yes, I was very happy with the pool that we, we went on tour in the fall. But I would also say I'd agree with you that there are certain areas that we are a bit skinny on and that we need to, to beef up in case we get injuries in particular. And I'd also like to say that the pool is not locked in for the World Cup. I have an open mind. I mean, that's why I'm looking around the Super League, see if I can see anybody who I think should be in the pool and give them a shot, you know. So it's still a work in progress. But I would say at the moment that I'm pretty happy with the guys who've been in the pool up to now. It's it's a pretty decent squad. I think we need a little bit more depth. That's probably an extra prop that we can we can look at. We you know we, we have four or five props. We need an extra one. We definitely need another couple of hookers in the frame. You know, we have two good hookers in Teal and Biller. But if, you know, Anton happened to any of those guys... Um, you know, second row is, is has improved a lot, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's 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 completed. The back row is strong, but you'd always keep an open mind. You know, um another another backup number ten or a second number ten would be good. And the midfield is still open, you know, there was some guys didn't play it particularly well in the fall in the midfield and, and, and uh and on more coverage at full backs. When you stack it like that, there's a, still a bit of work to do. Um I think we've got a good core but there's there's room for improvement. Um in terms of preparation, preparation isn't ideal, to, to be quite honest about it. We, we have uh, 
managed to put a budget together this year, which which is pretty limited. But we've we've got a camp in 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 May um, for for the domestic players. It's the fourth to the eighth of May, and that would be just domestic players, like we have every year, domestic camp. It's um it, it's it's a, a down week in the Super League, so it's the only time we're going to get them. And then we go to Churchill Cup, and the Churchill Cup is is run over the bones of three weeks in England this year, starting on. We arrive in England on the 31st of uh, May and we wrap up on the 18th of, of June. And then at the moment, we don't have any other assembly until we start our warm-up games. And we have three warm-up games in August. Uh, the first three weekends in August, we play Canada uh, in Toronto and then we come back to Glendale for the return game. And then we're scheduled to go to Japan to play uh, Japan in, in our final warm-up game. Um, I'd have to say that Again, you'd have to wonder if that Japan game or what will happen because of yeah. the carnage that occurred in Japan, and we'd have to sit and wait and see what the Japanese want to do. But that hopefully that will, game will come off and that will give us three games. But we don't have any other preparation for, until the World Cup. That's it. We are trying to raise some funds at the moment for uh, to have a rugby camp, and I've yet to decide where I plug that in. Whether I plug it in at the last week in July or the week before we go to Rugby World Cup. Um, so we don't have a lot of preparation. I, I, I did prioritize two things. I prioritized us seeing the domestic players. Um, and um, I, 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 I was um, kind of really making that as a priority because I wanted the, uh, the domestic players to get a chance um, you know, to, to fight, fight their way into the pool. And I also prioritized the warm-up games. We needed three games. We couldn't just go to... Uh, to to um, uh, New Zealand without warm-up games. You know, we could spend that August in camp, but we we would. I've learned from my experience that you need to play games, and maybe guys get injured in that. You don't know, but they're the risks you should take. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's not the greatest. I mean, compared to Russia, uh, who are our main opposition in terms of a game we have to win. I mean, they went to New Zealand in January, then they just came out this, the the tier two Six Nations at the moment, and. Um, they now go back to their club for a couple of months. Then they come to the Churchill Cup. Then they go into camp for July. And then they play their warm-up games in August. So their time together is almost three times what we have. So that's that's unfortunate. But it is what it is. Uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll get enough funds put together to have that rugby camp before we before we go to the World Cup uh, for, I, for five days. I got a quick question. You were saying you need a little depth of 10. At, you know, who's your 10? Is an SA healthy or like... Is, is there really – do you have a 10 that you've kind of settled on yet or is that is that kind of still a, a – looks to me as, a, as an outsider, it's kind of an up-in-the-air position. Um, well, Messi Malifa was the guy who got the 10 short um, on the tour. And, um, I mean, he did a good job. Um, but – we we had Tyan also as well, but he he did really nail it. So that second that backup position is still there, and Nessie has been injured since the fall tour uh, with a knee injury. He's making his way back slowly, um, and we hope he makes it back. So it's a kind of a vulnerable place for us. Um, and in the same way, you know, Chris Wiles was was really our our uh, our starting fifteen. Um, but again, we don't have any great depth in backing up Chris Wiles. So they're two key positions. Um, that that we're really looking at, you know. So it it, it that there 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 are things we've got to try and resolve between now and, and and the the end of the summer. Well, you have a you actually have a coaching tool out there that you've been involved with with um, Shane Byrne, who really did a really cool commercial um, that made him look awesome. And but you have RuckingBall.com. And what's going on with RuckingBall.com? How do uh, what's in it for coaches? What's in it for players? And how do they get involved? And 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 I think there's three levels of involvement that they can have. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. Well, um, RuckingBall.com is a website specifically for coaches and players. <clears throat> it's a uh, I was approached by a former defence coach of mine, Michael Ford, who's now the England defence coach. And he, he put together a group of people to put this this website in place. My first reaction, to be honest, was, God, there must be 10 or 20 of these coaching sites. And there aren't. There's none. There isn't any particular website that's deals strictly with coaching and, and giving information to players. Um, 
so what we've done is we've gathered together a lot of experienced players and coaches. The, obviously myself, Martin Corey, Shane Byrne, um, Pat Howard. There's uh, Mike Fry, there's a sevens expert. There's strength conditioning. There's, there's uh, nutritional advice. And we basically keep loading information onto the website. There's three levels. Level one is anybody can on for free and can read all the information there. Level two is uh, you've got to pay a little money, but you can get access to good videos of and it it, do, it does stuff like how to throw a line out ball, how to build a scrum, how all the binding in the front row, tackling drills, continuity drills, decision making drills. It's pretty much everything you'd want there. And that level two is is like I think it costs something like fifty fifty five cents a week to be a member. Uh, it's, it's less than thirty bucks a year. Um, and um, for that, you have access to all the information. There's forums there where you can ask questions. You can ask questions of coaches. And they'll answer the questions for you. Um, so it's it's something interesting. I, I've been involved working in it for the last, I guess it's like seven months now. And um, every week I do a blog on the game, and I also do an article. And I, I tend to to deal more with the attacking game. Uh, Martin Carr deals more with the lineout stuff. Shane Byrne with scrum. I said Mike Friday does sevens. We've got it. Nigel Day, Nigel uh, Owens is the referee. Um, he referees answers referee and law questions. And um, it's pretty much trying to, to get as much information in one place that could be valuable to players and coaches. So particularly coaches are starting out that are not sure of all aspects of the game, you know, how to build a scrum, how to show the binding positions, uh, as I say, safe tackling drills, safe continuity drills. And there's talk about tactics as well, obviously. It's all aspects of the game. Um, so it's quite an interesting project to be involved in. And uh, I think some good information there. I mean, I think people should log on and have a look at it. And if they really like it, they can go the next step and, and, and pay a small fee, as I said, about 50-something 50, 50 cents a week to, to get access all the time. So um, I think it's a good project to be involved in. I enjoy writing about the game and, and commenting and answering questions as well. It keeps me interested in, in, in what's going on in the game and, and the changes that are taking place in the law and, and the interpretations. So it's quite exciting project to be involved in. Well, actually, I was talking to James Isaacson after the game, the coach of life, and, you know, Tolks and I have a, have a thing that, Simple execution of the basics is the most beautiful form of rugby. If you can execute the simple things well, and a lot of people, like we were talking yesterday, but a lot of people look for the magic bullet. The magic bullet is just hard work, and the magic bullet is doing the little things well. And I think that's what this is really about, this whole, this whole website, is like doing the little things well. The simple, basic things, the basics of rugby is what makes the game great and what makes you play great. We all know the best team in world rugby consistently are the All Blacks. Now, you could argue they haven't won the World Cup in 25 years, but they win more games than anybody. And and their game, and I couldn't agree more with you, their game is based on simplicity. If you look at everything they do, they don't do anything extraordinary. They just do everything they do incredibly well, incredibly accurately. And and they make incredibly smart decisions and just execute. Um you know, that's the simplicity of all black rugby. They, they, you rarely see them throw a complicated move together. It's just usually the simple thing that's done so well you can do nothing about it. Well, Eddie, what are the some of the things that you hope, you know, overall as a goal for rucking ball? Do you, are, are you thinking more in terms of reaching out to, like you said, beginning coaches or, or on the grassroots level, just getting more people up to date? Well, I think it's for all levels, actually. I mean, it goes from the very basics to little drills you can do in the park with kids that just have a ball uh, to right up to discussing the the, 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 the the details of proper lifting in the line-out, proper tactics. So it goes right the way through. Um, it's not geared for uh, just beginners. It's geared for all levels. Um, I mean, I've, I've done articles on, on continuity and, and, and the, the tackle-ruck transition that are right on the edge of what we do at international game. This is how we get it done at the international game. It might be applicable to coaching an under-14 team or, or, or a high school, uh, junior junior high school team, but there's stuff for a junior high school coach just as, as well there. you know. Um, so it, it's trying to, to get all the information you would need to, to coach the game in one place. And it surprises me it hasn't been done before, but I have I did actually search the internet, and there's there are places you can get bits of information, but there's nothing where it's all collated in one place. And the beauty of it as well is um, we've got it, we've got Dave Aldred who, who does all the kicking drills. He's got lots of kicking drills up there um, uh, on video 
uh, where you can see the techniques of executing all the different kicks in rugby. And he's regarded as the top kicking coach in the world. Um, and I said Shane Byrne talking about line-out throwing, about front row play, uh, Martin Curry talking about the line-out. Um, it, it, it's pretty much trying to get everything done uh, in one place. Now, it's taking time to build it. There's a lot of information there at the moment, and there'll be more information. Like, I mean, there's, all, there's up to, I think, an average of 10 or 12 new articles a week and eight or 10 blogs, and there's forums as well where you can ask questions and people discuss things and agree to disagree or disagree to agree, you know. So it's 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 a healthy place to get into, and, and for anyone, it doesn't matter what level of the game you're 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 working in. I think you'll find it um, interesting to to log in there and, and find out what's what's being talked about. All right, so that is ruckingball.com, and that's live right now, so people can go have a look at it. Uh, just moving back to a, a couple of things, and you know, I, I know you're busy, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time, and just have a couple of more things to. Uh, I wanted to touch on um, one of them, and we talked about time together. Uh, sevens and fifteens. Um, the, it, as usual, you know, for the for the USA sevens team, also uh, depth is an issue, time together is an issue, all those things. You do clash at times in terms of of the schedule, and I think the schedule clashes in May. Um, is is this a time when you say? Rugby World Cup 2011 takes priority. Any players who might go one way or the other, they should be with the 15s team? Um, if there is a clash coming up to the World Cup, yeah, I think, think 15s. And if it was a, it was a World Cup 7s year, it would go, it, we would, and if it was a clash, we would go, go up to 7s, you know. It makes sense to do that. There aren't that many clashes, actually. In fact, I think the clash at the end of the season is, is avoided because the, the final... The final sevens tournament, I believe, is the last weekend in May uh, in, in Edinburgh. And we actually don't arrive into England until the following Tuesday. So there isn't actually an overlap, you know. Um, and it's I've always th- thought it's, it's a good idea for guys who can get who have the ability to play both sevens and fifteens for us at the moment. I think there's another discussion on this as to what point down the track do we look at sevens and fifteens as specialist games in America. But at this juncture, I've said this many times, you know, we don't have that sort of depth and talent like a lot of the other tier one nations where we can draw that line in the sand. So for the moment, the sevens and fifteens programs have to work in parallel. And I think it's it's been good for both programs that we've had this crossover player between sevens and fifteens. And um, you know, the guys who come back from from Adelaide now after after Hong Kong and they come into Eagles camp and then the Eagles camp finishes as the sevens camp picks up for, for the, for the last two games in May, the last two tournaments in May. And then guys leave the last two tournaments after London and Edinburgh and they come to Churchill cup. So it's, it's tagged on pretty well. And when we've had a collision on, on, we, we've worked it out. Yeah, there's not been major issues. Um, we've worked around it and we've both been able to try and unearth players for each, each of those programs as guys who've, Played 15s, have gone into sevens, and guys who've started sevens come to 15s. So I think it's a good dynamic at the moment. And I, but I do think it will change in time. There's no question. But it's it's worked out pretty well. But I think this year being a rugby world cup year for 15s, I think we, you know, if there if there is a, a trade off, we we would go with 15s, and and vice versa if it was a sevens world cup year. There's no question about that. Okay. Uh, we also talked briefly. We sort of skirted around the the topic of goal kicking. And goal kicking, reliable goal kicking, has been uh, an issue for the USA off and on for many years. Uh, Mike Herkus had his time when he was he was really pretty accurate and pretty dependable, and then he had some some difficult moments. and uh, And he's not with the you know team anymore. As he's I guess his time is done. And and we're talking about Nessie Malifa, and he doesn't have a huge range. He's still working on his goal kicking. And then we wonder who who else is there to kick goals. And the the funny thing is that in in and I just wrote this, in the United States we seem to on the national team we seem to assume that it's your your fly half, your number 10 is going to be your goal kicker. And throughout the history of rugby, there have been some outstanding uh goal kickers, Jean Pratt for for France who was a flanker, um uh John Eels of course who was a lock for for Australia, um you know uh, Thierry Lacroix who, for France, also who is a center. There are lots of different Gavin Hastings fullback, right? There are lots of different positions who could kick goals. In the United States, we just don't seem to have them. 
Um, so I, I I don't know what you do there, wh- how you how you handle that, and it, is there someone who's a great goal kicker in the United States right now that you would pick simply because he can kick goals? And um, it's very hard to do that, Alex, with a test level. You know, um, it's very hard to pick a guy who can just kick goals uh, in a modern game. And I remember Ireland picked um, a full back man, well, about 15 years ago, called Simon Mason who won a European or Heineken Cup at Ulster, he was full back and he was an incredible place kicker. The guy just never missed. But he was he was a very average full back and he struggled, you know, and it hurt Ireland uh, in those games. Like you were, eventually they ended up having to drop him because the trade office was was, was too expensive. And, and I think that's something you've got to weigh up, you know. Um, but having said that, like our next best place kicker at the moment has to be Chris Wiles. Um, he's got much better range than Nessie, but he wouldn't be as accurate for close in. So we may end up having two place kickers on the field. We may end up having Chris Wiles taking the long range kicks if we feel it's within his range. And he's Chris is getting up there now to around. He's worked an awful lot last year and he's kicking. And we've, we've brought in Chris O'Brien as a kicking coach to work with the team, um, former Eagle himself. And, and uh, he, he, he's, a, he's, he's a lot of expertise in kicking. And not just place kicking, punting as well, and drop kicking. And um, he's been working with the guys. He's been taking their film, breaking it down, giving them feedback. And uh, I think you know Chris is somebody who didn't really see himself as a kicker up to maybe a year ago. And in the fall tour, actually, our our, our strategic kicking game improved a lot because we brought gave Chris an awful lot more responsibility of kicking the ball out of hand and took some pressure off Nessie. And the fact he's a left-footed kicker means we can have a much better chance of dominating field position with a right-footed kicker and a left-footed kicker. So we're working on that area. And um, it's, it's, again, a place we need to work on because, you know, as I said about Italy, you know, Italy of Bergamasco, who's kicking for them now as a frontliner, but he's not a frontline kicker. He's, it's his first season doing that, and he, he's hurt them a few times in the, cha- in, the, in the Six Nations Championship by missing what were very capable, kickable kicks. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious you, you need somebody who can put the ball over the over the crossbar between the posts. A lot of games are won and lost on kicks. But um, I don't think you can carry somebody who just does that. You know, I mean, maybe maybe in time we'll have a, like they have in the NFL, a guy will come off on the field and kick the, kick the penalties and go back <laughs> off again. But I, I don't see it for a while. But I, at the moment, Nessie is working away in his game. And I think he's improving. You know, he's got better. He, he kicked some really good conversions this year uh, for us in, 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 the, uh, in the Churchill Cup and, and, and in the fall tour. Um, he missed a couple as well. He might have got, but I think he's getting there. And uh, Chris is also getting better. Well, Andrew Sunil, like he, he's place kicker for the Chicago Griffins. Bottom line is, I don't mind who puts it through the sticks as long as somebody can do it. Um, but we have an open mind, and, and we're working on it. And, and I say having Chris O'Brien on board has been a big help as well. And what about uh, the, the other thing? Is drop kicks actually? Uh, um, I think that was the first time ever that the United States had two different players kick a drop goal in one Test match against Georgia. Uh, it's a it's a nice little skill to have. I don't, I don't. You know, s- some people tend to look on it as a, a almost a trick play, really, like that uh, that 1999 um, quarterfinal between South Africa and England when uh, South Africa kicked five drop goals. Yanni De Beer. Yeah, Yanni De Beer, and 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 that was um, that was in a way just sort of scoffed at as well. That was a freak type thing and 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 actually some serious discussion about should we now uh you know devalue the drop goal things like that but but it's it's a it's a great skill to have it's really it's really wonderful to see it when it happens it is a skill and and it see what happens with any what happens with any skill is when somebody does it really well it looks very easy and because it looks easy um people scoff at it a bit they go oh, yeah but you give anybody um uh, a ball and say here drop a goal there from 50 meters and and people struggle or 40 meters and then add into it that the game is on the line or add into it that there's three people trying to charge it down and it's a different it's like it's like that that pot everybody can make from two feet until there's a master's hanging at you know and and it's a fantastic skill and look at the world cup in in 2003 johnny wilkinson dropped a goal in extra time to to win it you know if, ironically, the, the 1995 World Cup was won with a drop goal as well when South yeah, Africa yeah, sure. Um So it, it's still a big part of the game. And we, I mean, you saw this year. I mean, Ireland won the Grand Slam in 09 with a drop goal from Ronan O'Gara, and and, and um, the, the same thing. He, he he saved Ireland in Rome this year with a drop goal as well. 
So it's becoming people are becoming much more aware of the value of the drop goal in terms of closing out a game or or actually um, you know snapping a game that you're going to lose. You just work, and it's a funny dynamic when you've got that maybe one or two point spread and a drop goal is going to win it for you. When you're attacking with the ball, the opposition has to be really careful. They can't be careless at the offside line or, or the rock because they gave away a penalty, and that's even easier than a drop goal. I mean, a penalty is an easier kick than a drop goal because it's a dead ball situation. You just have to go through your routine and strike the ball well. Because a drop goal is a live ball situation. You've got people trying to block it down. There's got to be a pass involved. It's got to be right in the money, and you've got like you've got like a half second to get it from your hands to your foot. So it's a fantastic skill, and as I say, because at times it's the, the really world class drop goal kickers make it look so easy. People scoff at it a bit and say, "Oh, it's you know, it's, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be done." But again, you ask anybody to pull that off under pressure, and it's a hell of an achievement. I've got a interesting segue on this because I have noticed that in the college premier division, there have been a couple of players kicking drop goals, and Stevie Johnson, the last night, kicked a drop goal for Arizona State to help. Uh, just again, they were leading, and it was just just another three points to give themselves a cushion. It's nice to see that skill being um, being used on the college level. And I wanted to ask you about not only college rugby but um, the young players uh, overall. First of all, how are things looking on the on the college level in terms of young players who maybe might break into the the national team now or very soon and also what, what what's your advice for a young player 16 17 18 19 years old who wants to play for the national team what are some of the things that perhaps he can he can think about or work on to get himself there um yeah the college premier league has been a been fantastic I think it's it's brought the game to another level again I know there are some scores a bit lopsided but I think the whole experience is going to improve you know the, the rising tide will, will, will raise all boats and um, I think there are players in the current Premier League that will be close to pushing for positions in the current Eagle squad um, unfortunately I suspect that our camp in May is clashing with, with a college Premier League weekend, so we may not even be able to get a lot of those guys into that domestic camp. But that doesn't mean we won't consider them. And, and again, having all that Premier League film to look at would be good. Um, I think that the best advice for, for young players who, who have you know an ambition to represent the Eagles uh, is that they've got to, uh, as Bruce pointed out, learn the game, the simplicities of the, of the game, the basic skills. And the thing about rugby is that it's 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 become a multi-skill game. You know, back in the old days, a prop really didn't carry the ball. They just scrummaged and and they worked in the lineouts and they worked in the scrum and they worked in the tight and every forward and every rock. And you maybe had a backer that would carry the ball and fly halves were the only ones that really kicked the ball or the scrum half. And it, it was a different game, but the game was morphing all the time. And the skill set that each player requires now, every player's got to be able to run, pass, tackle. They've got to be able to clean out a rock. They've got to be able to take the ball into contact and present it. They've all got to be able to defend. They've got to, 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 to drift defend as well as tackle, know when to defend, know who to tackle. So there's a lot of skills out there that are actually just the basic skills of the game. So the players who are going to come to the top are the guys who get all the basics done really well. And then, of course, there's their positional skills. Like if you're a flanker or a fly half or you're a prop, and they have to be layered on top as well. So you can never be too skillful. You can never uh, get to the point where you don't have to get any better at, at, at how to play the game. So the more skillful you become, um, the more likely you are to catch the eye of, of the coach or, or, or the selector who's picking the team. And one other thing I would say is that there's some great athletes in, in this country. And they, you know a lot of them find their way to rugby after playing football in high school, maybe when they go to college, which is great. Um, and rugby requires a lot of athleticism, as we've seen. Uh, you know, you need to be very strong and powerful to play the game, and the more athletic you are, the easier it is to play. But it can't be just about athleticism. You've got to have the skill element as well to go with it. So it's got to be that twin-track approach. And there's one aspect of the athleticism that maybe American players need to look a little closer, is that rugby is a game of cardiovascular endurance, of anaerobic and aerobic and maybe a lot of the, the fitness that American kids tend to focus on is purely in the gym. You know, having a really good bench press, a really good squat, a really good broad jump, a really good vertical jump. Um, they're all important, but you've also got to be able to run for 80 minutes. And you've got to be that kind of athlete that can 
do all things. You can run a mile, you can run 100 meters. Um, you're a sprinter, you're an endurance player, and you have to be um, also able to go into contact. So that's the challenge physically. And, and maybe one thing that strikes me at times is we, we, we get players that are very powerful, um, really, really strong athletes, but they don't have a good engine. And you need a good engine in rugby. You've got to be able to be that athlete for 80 minutes and not just be good for 20 minutes. So that's really it. And if you keep ticking all those boxes, you know, the cream will rise to the top. You will get noticed. Uh, but it's a long process. It takes a long time to become skillful. It takes a long time to become athletic. You just have to keep working and working on it. Um, I think Michael Jordan said it, you know, that there's no substitute for hard work. You know, the, the, the harder he worked, the better he got. So if someone of that talent and ability can put so much emphasis on working hard. I think that's, that tells a lot. Well, actually, I, I wanted to uh, chime in there and say that um, I, I, I was talking about this yesterday. A lot of guys are gym rats. A lot of guys have beach bodies. But at the end of the day, can he play rugby? And there's too many, like, too many hookers are not good throwers. Too many players, they don't practice kicking goals. Like, even stupid stuff, kicking the touch from a penalty, you think, like, ah, you know, you just kick, you punt it. If you kick the touch, you get a penalty 30 yards from goal, and you're going to go for the line out. There's a big difference between if you put it out at the 5 and put it out at the 10. Like, that puts the opposition under mental pressure. And a lot of guys, a lot of guys really are, they, they practice things, they do things in the gym, but they don't, um, they don't really, go out there on the field and do the skills that they have to have. Like I, I, I don't think that the throwers in America work hard enough on it. I really don't. I don't think that the goal kickers or the touch kickers and the place kickers, I don't think that they're working hard enough on those skills. Well, the world-class place kickers like Johnny Wilkinson, Ron Nagara, Sexton, you know, um, Carter, these guys put hours and hours into the place kicking. It's like they're, they're just grinded out. There's no shortcuts. And, um, you don't, you know, you don't get good at those things, uh, unless you put the hours in. And it's the same in every other sport. Rugby is, is exactly the same. But the challenge in rugby is, as you know, Bruce, that the basic skill set for a player now is very broad. There's a lot of things you've got to be able to do as a rugby player that you wouldn't have had to do 10 or 15 years ago. But you've got to do Eddie, it. Eddie, Eddie, I totally agree with you that the basic skill set is broad. And I think that because the basic skill set is broad, what's happening is guys aren't focusing on any skills. They're just working on their fitness. Yeah, that's, and that's and nice. I and I think that because it's like oh I got to be good at everything so I'm not going to do anything I'm just going to get fit. But well, the fact of the matter is you got to get you got to get good at what you got to you got to be good at things that happen a lot in the game to you. Like a lineout throw is going to throw 16 times a game. You know a, a hooker is going to scrum 15 times a game, and you know there's, there's a fullback's going to catch six or seven high balls. Stupid stuff like. A number eight making a left-handed pass off the base of the scrum. If you're smart about this stuff, you can combine skill learning with fitness. You can do both, you know, um, if you're smart about it. You can – you can. And if you go to ruckingball.com, you'll find out how. <laughs> exactly. I'll rest my case. <laughs> well, that's perfect. Thank you very much, uh, Eddie O'Sullivan, uh, U.S. national team head coach. Uh, as you said, you've got a, a domestic camp coming up in May and then the Churchill Cup. And following that, uh, a, a two-game series with Canada, and we hope a, a game with Japan, and certainly we uh, hope the best for the residents of that country as they dig themselves out of uh, a pretty nasty situation, and hopefully that game will come off. And then the World Cup suddenly be upon us. You've got a lot of decisions to make and not a lot of time to do them, and we really appreciate you taking the time. Okay, Alex, thanks for the invitation, and it's great to be back again. We'll talk again soon, hopefully. Take care, my friend. All right, thank you very much. All right, well, Bruce McLean, what did you think? I, I, I think that we're, you know, I mean, he obviously under, understands and knows how to play rugby. The, the problem is right now that do we have the team to execute on the field in the World Cup? I think that we have a lot of positions that we're strong in, and I think that we have a lot of question marks that are going to be very, very difficult to uh, to answer. And and, I, and over the course of time, they're going to have to figure that out. I, 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 would, I would really maybe even – I mean, I know it's a long way away, but I would kind of look at Ossentowski and, and think about bringing him back into the fold. I, I don't know 
That's a that's a that's a question we could have asked him actually. That's worth asking. I think that at the end of the day, we're gonna have to get our front row sorted out. We have to get our not our front row. We have to get our props sorted out. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. And 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 while some of them are good rugby players and not good props, they're just not not in an international standard props. And and then we have to. Uh, and I think we're gonna have to really sort out. Who is going to be the ten? And and I, and I think the back three is, it's going to, you know, the midfield and back three will come around. I like, you know, hey, look, I, I would always be a fan of Petri and Troy Hall, but that's just that's just me. Well, you know, it's not just you. I I I disagree with O'Sullivan on the scrum half issue. Uh, judging from the picks he's made, I, I would pick uh, Petri over over Tim Usas. This midfield, the midfield might sort itself out. It might not. My problem with that is there are a bunch of guys who are pretty good, and um, you know Eddie said that they they hadn't really put their hands up. There, there were some people had you know problematic tours. Fine, but there, there's a bunch of guys who are pretty good. The question is, what's the right combination, and what happens if you still don't know by the time you know, and start the right combination? Hall and Emmerich are the right combination. That's it. Well, Troy Hall at well, inside center, Paul Emmerich at outside center, um, Z on the wing, Wiles at fullback, and and um, well, you, you and 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 no, no, and, uh, no, no. and swearing on the other wing. You know that you you know that most test co- coaches have a hard time of late picking a relatively small guy at inside center. He's 195 pounds. He's bigger than yes. that kiddo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no. It's, it, He's the best inside center in America. It's not even close. It's not. It's not even up for discussion. Okay. All right, but but that this 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 is this is a guy you coach, so you you have a, a personal stake. I don't in have whereas, a personal stake whereas, in anything. I, look, I'm not telling guys to pick other guys on my team. I'm saying right now, Troy Hall's great, and he should play, and that's the way it is. That's how I feel. Okay, okay. I don't care what anyone else thinks. What I'm talking about here partly is the approach that I've been seeing and there are two things that I've been seeing on the the Eagles coaching staff and it doesn't matter who it's been two things that I've seen one is they tend to look go for big and powerful at inside center and I'm not saying it's always worked in fact they've had trouble with it and the other thing is whenever they've had the choice and this goes back to Clark to Hall to Billups to Thorburn to Johnson to O'Sullivan, the vast majority of the time, not always, but the vast majority of the time on prop, if they have a choice between a scrummager who maybe doesn't get around the park much and a guy who gets around the park a lot and is trouble at scrummaging, they're going to pick the second guy. They just do. Now, the argument that's very strong within the prop, the front row community in the United States, and you're in there too, says that they're making a mistake. It's not a matter that they're making a mistake. There's not a lot of good props, so they're not making a mistake. And as far as the inside center, outside center, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna question who anyone has picked. And Sunil is a really good center. He's a big guy, and so that, that that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that Troy Hall is 500 times better than Sunil. Sunil is a really good center. I'm just I would pick Troy over him, but that's my opinion. Right, and but no, there's and no, also that's a lot of guys who are really good club players, and a lot of guys they don't translate into international players. I don't necessarily think that anyone is trying to make bad decisions in selection ever, because they're not. They're trying to pick the best guys. They're trying to pick like. It, it, but I I think that that would be my settled. I I'm not, I wouldn't be settled on fly half. I'm, you know, if Nessie's healthy, then that's great. You know, but I would go Petri Nessie. Uh, Hall, Emmerich, Swearin, Z, and Wiles in the end, at the back. That's kind of how I, that's what I would pick. But I, I'm also not a practice. Well, I like Sifa. I think Sifa's a good center, and I think he, even though he's small. And, and Tolks told me Sifa's great. Yep. Said he loves him. He thinks he's great. Now, look, all these guys are great. It's a matter of how are they going to use, how are they going to mesh with each other? Right. Who's right. going to play where? And, and I don't. I don't and, have... and when does and when does that decision get made? Because well, if it's made late, late, if we find out uh, on the last game of the World Cup, wait a second, we should have had these two guys at center together all along. It works out great. They're going to have to decide who it is, and they're going to have to pick their team. You know, like yeah. do you, do you play Johnson and Oz up front? 
mm-hmm. you know, it, I, I was played tight head for the, for the, uh, for the Eagles, but he's also a really good loose head. And then it gives you a little bit of platform and stability. You lose a little bit around the park, but you can, you can, you can, Oz actually, Oz, Oz, Oz actually has a pretty high work rate for a problem. It's a very high work, high work rate. Yeah. Yeah. And I really think that, I really think that the Eagles need Ossentowski and I think he'd help them. I really do think he'd help them. I, I think they have, I think, they, like I said, I think they have good second rows. Um, I think they have hookers. I think that they, I think they have a really good back row and they have a lot of options there. I think the combination issue at the back row is also an an issue as to who exactly is going to go six, seven, and eight. Well, uh, the, the, the combination issue, but the the fact of the matter is, they have guys, and 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 what they really do have is they have guys who can all jump. They have guys yes, who can do. all play, and they have guys who can, and that they have options to play good rugby and and the thing is if they they need to be solid up front in order to give themselves the platform to be able to play the play the game that they want to play and that they're capable and they're actually are capable of playing good rugby but if you're always struggling and you're always worrying about what kind of possession you're going to get it's very difficult to get on the front foot all right perfect that's the way to end it uh bruce mclean that was a really good show i really enjoyed it and uh Uh, Thanks a lot for being part of it, and we will see you next time on Rugged Matrix America.